Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement. Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure I have the opportunity of presenting Mike Oppenheim to the show today. Writer, podcaster, conversationalist, musician, philosopher, book indexer, and father. Our guest has been interested in entertainment since he was a child, but became serious about it in 2003 when he began his music career with Punch Clock and Smirk. In 2006, Mike started his weekly philosophy essay, The Casual Casuist. And in 2011, he earned a Master's of Fine Arts in Fiction from Mills College with his novel, Dysfunction. Mike has since released Baby Doll, the book in 2012, Too Good to Be True in 2017, and The Apology in 2021. His fifth novel, Ardor, was just recently released in March of this year and is currently available on Amazon. Mike also makes short videos, including the ones entitled Squawk in 2018, You Science in 2020, and Me Search in 2021. In the same year, 2021, Mike and his wife, Alana, started a metaphysical podcast called Coffin Talk, which I had the pleasure of appearing on as a special guest last summer. Mike also indexes books, runs various writing workshops, and his goal is to make his clients think and laugh while improving their writing abilities. It's a great pleasure. I welcome Mike to the show. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be on. I, I told you this at the end of our Coffin Talk interview, but I knew of you like for a year before we talked because I listened to your show and I loved it. And it ties in even to the theme of my latest novel, which is why I was dying to talk to you. So <laughs> thanks again. I, I have to say this. I was talking to you before we started recording today and I remember our interview last summer and I remember saying to you at the end of our interview, how I wanted to have you come on the show. I didn't think it'd be almost a year later. Time goes fast, but I didn't go think it goes that fast. For me, it's a pleasure having you on. I love when people are creative. I love when people can be creative and express themselves, especially write about metaphysical topics and spirituality and psychic stuff. I'll ask you, what motivated you to begin your writing career and how did you start it? That's a great question. Uh, and actually... I was a musician my whole life. I love writing music more than I love playing music. And so that should have been more of a clue as I was getting older. But once I was in like real bands, I remember just like wanting to like release albums and songs, but not wanting to perform. And I don't have stage fright. I can play on stage. I have a million times, but I don't like it. And I would get off stage and everyone else would have like this glow in this eye and I'd just be utterly tired, like exhausted. And then after my second band broke up, I was, I don't even remember where I saw the ad, but I saw an ad for a three-day novel writing contest in 2006. And I thought, that sounds like a fun challenge, which kind of segues into the show You Science I would make 20 years later. But I love challenges. So I signed up for it. And I had a friend with an art studio in Portland, Oregon. And I said, can I borrow your art studio for three days? And she said, sure. So I went down there with a bag of peanuts and like a couple bottles of water. And I just locked myself in an art studio for three days. I had a bathroom. And uh, I wrote an entire novel listening to Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd on repeat. And it was the most fun I've like ever had. <laughs> so did you have a direct download at that point? I, and I say this creative downloads for me or something I know a lot of people talk about these, but where you could just channel energy and come up with this flow that created your book, your novel. Yeah. How it happened in those three days. Was it like a feverish pitch of channeling this information <laughs> yeah. and just letting it flow? And, and you had these, I feel like you had these images that you just wrote out and you had almost like a movie, a film playing in your mind, but then you encapsulated it by writing it into a book. That's what I sense you probably did. 
That's a hundred percent accurate. And my dad would actually love that you said that because he always says I write cinema in books. And I think it's very true. I like think cinematically and I download cinematically and then I write with the English language and words. And it's interesting because since I see the picture so clearly, the thing I had to work on the most in my MFA program was visual details for the audience. Like I just assume they can see what I see, but that's not true. And so I was like really heavily dialogue driven and just like the sounds of the world and what going on with the plot mechanisms. And, uh, and then the other funny thing I learned that weekend is the download was so fast that I had to keep up with it. It wasn't like the other way around. So I remember like trying to write as fast as my brain was outlining it. And then I finished really early. And then I was like, what do I do now? And then voices now you edit. And that's when I learned the least fun part of writing. (laughs) (laughs) I make jokes when people come on because I've had different artists and different creatives come on and talk about, and even myself, like, I'll be in the shower and I'll have something flow that I have to write down and stop my shower and grab my phone and record it with my voice if I have to. Or I'll have a friend while I'm driving say, can you write this on your phone while I come up with this? Or if I'm in a restaurant, I'll write it down on a napkin. It, it doesn't matter how you get it down. It's capturing it and being able to get it so that you can use it. And yeah. me, it's, not, it's not novels, it's show idea, episode ideas, other things I want to do if it's charity work or whatever, or who I want to have come on my show, I get downloads and then I'll have images pop in my head like a clairvoyant thing. And I know I'm inspired. And so I want to ask you this because I can connect really with what you're saying. What do you think about a muse? Because I've had certain people come in my life that act as muses and they don't even realize it. If they hurt me or I really like that person or it was just a situation that I couldn't forget, but it propels me. It's like fuel for the car. It propels me to be so creative. And you know how all these artists, they write their most amazing number one hits about heartache or depression or disappointment. And I want to ask you, what do you think about muses and how do you feel like the role they serve in your life? Yeah, it's funny because as you say that, I was thinking like, oh no, I don't have an answer for this. And then all of a sudden I was like, no, actually it's entirely true. Every novel has a different muse. And I couldn't even it would be hard to go back to 2011 and remind myself of like the muse for that novel or like 2012. But what I do know is that the novel I released in 2017, I wrote it when I was quote unquote happily married and had a, the ending of it is so prescient that it freaked my mom out because the things I detailed that happened to the character ended up happening to me. And that is a natural segue into the fifth book I wrote, Ardor which is the muse for that is my ex-wife and the situation that developed with my son between us. And it, it didn't feel good to write it. And the characters aren't based on her. That's why I like the word muse. It's I want to make sure people listening understand. And especially if my son were does listen to this or something, it's not that I based the novel on my divorce or anything like that. It's that the muse was like all those feelings I had about this situation and specifically with her and my son. And so I dedicated the novel to my son who I love to the ends of earth and back. And it's, it's so interesting that you would ask that because I hadn't thought of a perspective question for me. I'm going to go back after this interview and think. I'll give you an example. I, I, we all went through a lot during the pandemic the last few years. And I remember I dealt with this situation that just lingered and it frustrated me. So my way of handling it, I interviewed a hundred people in a summer, <laughs> 2021. I interviewed a hundred people and I built my podcast up and I realized that was like my muse. I didn't realize it at the time that a negative experience from three years ago can impact and create such a positive outcome. And people can become your muses and not even realize it themselves. But there's a gift to that. that. It gives you the ability to channel any negative energy into a positive result. And in turn, whatever it is you create can inspire others or can interconnect you closer to people or set you on a different path than you ever thought you'd be on before that happened to you. Yeah. Meeting you was really interesting because when I listened to your show before I knew you, I always get that guru complex with people. Oh, his life must be so easy because he has this gift that I don't use as well or even know if I have. And so your ability to like into it and use all those other abilities that come out of that it was so interesting to meet you and to be like, Oh, he's like a normal dude. Like he has a life, he has his conflict. And and so that I love hearing you explain that. And I didn't catch that earlier. I caught it, but I didn't react to it. I want to thank you for supporting my show and listening to it before we met each other. That means a lot to me. It really does. When you get to do something you're passionate about and then other people share that experience with you. It's, I remember I got an email from someone from Sweden when I first started my podcast five months out. And I was like, wait, someone in Sweden's listening to my show right now. Like this started 
as a hobby. It started as a wanting to express myself on my spiritual side when I had repressed it all those years because I had just been an attorney and I was afraid to let people know that I was also psychic and intuitive because they don't really, at least society doesn't put everything in the same priority or they don't package it. It doesn't package well as a lawyer if you have these other things you do, but I've kept them distinctly separate. But I have to say thank you for listening and supporting the show. What I want to ask you is this. When you look at your life in the last five years, what's been the greatest catalyst for change in your life and how has it shaped your creative flow? The answer to the first part of the question and catalyst is undoubtedly my wife, Alana, who came out of nowhere and yet was so familiar and I knew her all my life and she'll say the same thing. Soulmates? And then, total soulmates. I don't think twin flames. But yeah. It's interesting. I thought about that. She wanted <laughs> us to be twin flames. She kept like arguing for that. No, you don't so. want a twin flame. Yeah. You don't want a runner to chase yeah. her in a period exactly. of being <laughs> and all that confusion and turmoil. I know it helps you level up, but it's not fun. <laughs> yeah. So definitely soulmate. And then the second part though is ironically related to her, which is neither of us can screw up this marriage because we're meant to be, but what we can do is we can make it horrible. And so that's actually been like the biggest change in the last five years is the maturity to see it through the right way to even yesterday, or was it yesterday and the day before we were in like this awful fight. And I was like, both of us have to grow up and just move on, not admit we were wrong or right. That actually will make it worse. We need to actually just move on. And so I went up to our bedroom and I made this like a pleading speech. I was like, we just need to move on. I know that sounds like I'm dodging it. You're dodging your sword. Did you fall on your yeah. sword? Yeah, yeah. Here's a tribute. I'm falling on my sword right now. Um, so yeah, so that's my answer. It's it's weird, but uh, keeping that together. Yeah. So you're Mr. Creative in the relationship. Is she since she does the podcast with you as well? Is she the creative one as well? Are you both matching creatives? Yeah, she's like a business creative. So she does like Halo branding solutions and runs her own like business empire. And when I met her, she was working so hard and so much that I was like, I think for this relationship to work, you need to work a little less. So it's been interesting. And so she's so creative with all that. And meanwhile, I hate sales and I hate industry and I hate commercialism because I'm like a bitter pill and I have all that weird karma inside me. So I'm like yearning to be accepted by the community I say I don't like. And she helps me with that like so much. She helps me see how there's a creativity to participation in the human world and like all of the things that we go through. What do you think? You're actually an expression of what I believe is a theory that when you're creative, you're also intuitive. And when you're intuitive and creative, you could also be spiritual. And I want to ask, how do you react to that statement? I absolutely love it. And I completely concur. And I should add that the reason I discovered you was I was doing research on psychics for the book I wrote, Ardor, because it's about a psychic. And with all due respect to everyone who calls themselves a psychic, there were only three who like resonated. And I thought, oh, they're actually psychic. You were one of them and two were here. Wow. What an honor. And, and so, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing because you just can see, because I did a lot of research. So I read about like reading a room, hot read, cold read. I read like what charlatans and people do. And it's weird because I, I feel like a lot of people who are psychic, but then they're trying to be psychic. There's like, this second step that is a misstep in my opinion. Sometimes you just don't know. <laughs> I really appreciate that. In my situation, I was a reluctant psychic for at least 10, 10 years. In other words... I had the experience happen in 04, my grandfather, and I opened my door and then I kept the door ajar, meaning I didn't embrace it. And I just did my law practice. And then there were things that happened on my path that I couldn't avoid, like sitting next to someone who's a grieving mother and I picked up on the daughter or having friends come into my life who were grieving somebody and I was able to connect them and all those kind of things. I think from my vantage point, it sounds like when you met Alana, she really connected with you on such a deeper level for the both of you that you're two perfect halves forming a whole. I, Have you ever I totally agree. Like that? Because I feel that. Um, yeah, just, I really feel that. And in terms of your own motivations to be creative, a lot of people think that if you're creative, you have to have the standing room that's to withstand, to sustain yourself. You got to have your day job. Like I'm a lawyer right now. And then I'm the creative thing at night. Like in order to do it, you have to be nourished and keep yourself going. Have you found challenges with yourself putting out books or being a musician and being a creative that you still have to do what's quote air quotes, a day job while pursuing these other endeavors? Because being creative isn't as easily rewarded as it should be. 
Yeah, I've given so much thought to this because I thought in my timeline for myself that I would be able to quit my day job by 40 and I'm going to be 42. And I actually got this weird message along the way that was like, you actually like work. Like you don't want to admit it, but you like your day job. Like my day job is book indexing and I love it. I actually love it. And it's only a couple hours and it pays well. And then what I've learned recently though is there's a way to like metaphorically quit your day job while having a day job, which is you can prioritize your creativity over the day job. So you can wake up and write a chapter instead of doing book indexing in my case. And then you still have to do the book indexing, but you didn't prioritize it first. And that's the biggest shift I made in my life is I wanted to become more successful with my creative stuff. So I decided you have to show that you have to show that to yourself. So I do, I like, I try to like work on my creativity first. So it's my real job. And then I had a friend who's the most amazing musician I've ever met and played with. And he's poor, like his own words. And it's because as he says, he sucks at business and he helped me a lot. He's you could be very good at everything you do, but if you're not good at the business side, you're not going to win in this culture, the way it works. And that was really good food for thought for me. You're Gen X also. Is that right? I'm sorry, Gen X. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm on the cusp, but I heavily identify with Gen X and all my friends are five to 15 years older than me. So uh, yeah. The reason I bring that up is I'm Gen X. And the biggest joke about Gen X is no one knows who we are. <laughs> we blend <laughs> in. We're not like millennials or Gen Z and we're definitely not baby boomers, but we yeah. just kind of like that generation in the middle there. We're a smaller generation. So we're constantly overlooked. And uh, yeah. if I just said, you're telling me you're 42, I was like, yeah, you're on the cusp of Gen X and millennials. So I've been, I've been, we all late at night probably are prone to going on our phones and going on like Instagram and social media and just scrolling. And I've come across some interesting influencers that comment who are Gen Xers who are very funny about different things that affected Gen X compared to other generations. Like we were outside and our parents didn't hover over us. And we were able to be in the car with people smoking cigarettes with the windows rolled up in the air conditioner. <laughs> and that was considered okay. Or we had situations where like latchkey kids were actually a thing and it wasn't something that people looked at as child abuse. Or I, I, <laughs> I see all these innuendos or here are the real toys and it's like a, a transformer or the old fashioned one. Or we actually, when we scraped our knee, we weren't put in isolation for 48 hours. We were actually told to suck it up, put a bandaid on it and move on. Like big difference. And yeah, I think from your vantage point, because you have a son right now. How is your parenting style different from the way you were raised as your own experience? That's a great question. And I also have a young daughter. She'll be two in July and she lives with me. So it's actually easier to answer the question with her. But I raised Tyler, my son, until he was two. And then he moved to Thailand. I still am his dad and I'm a parent. But with him, it's so hands off. It's ridiculous because it's like Skype calls and whatever time I can get. With Alice, what I'm surprised by is how much I'm like my dad. And growing up, I thought my dad didn't care. And now I realize he cared so much that it came across as not caring. Like he just wanted me to be free. And so he never told me like, go to law school, go to this school. You have to go to college. You have to do this. But he also didn't say smoke weed and like freeload in your friend's apartment. Like he was a good dad. Like always, he is still alive. But growing up, his like direction was basically just like, I always tell people like bumpers in a bowling alley. When you're a kid and you, uh, and this also shows. I get Gen that. X. I get that. <laughs> I, that's so Gen X right there. By the way, that's so Gen X, right? You can mess up and fall out a few times. As long as you don't go down the gutter, we've done good parenting. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I raise Alice the same way. I'm like, if she screams at a restaurant, I'm going to scold her Gen X style. And I'm not going to be like all millennial. Oh, I brought earplugs for you people. No, that's not the solution. The solution is to actually parent your kid. And you get it. Meanwhile, yeah. <laughs> but if we're on like an airplane and she's crying, I can only do so much. So I'm a pretty reasonable dad that way. And then as she gets older, I really just want her to do whatever she does. One of the things I thought about a lot before I had Tyler was like how I don't care like what sexual orientation they choose or gender and all that. And it's not because I'm like woke or not woke or anything like that. I just actually don't care. And so that's the quality I'm getting at is like, please, for the love of God, be happy, be you, like no matter what. I definitely want to keep them out of the gutter. <laughs> you can definitely appreciate this because we're around the same age bracket, even though I'm five years older. When I was younger in the 80s and 90s, I never thought I'd be living in a day and age in the 2020s that we'd be dealing with issues from 50, 60 years ago. And this whole woke thing versus gender affirming thing, let people live who they are. Like 
let people be who they are. If someone's gay or LGBTQ or happens to want to learn about African-American studies in any state in our country, we should allow that. We shouldn't restrict books. We shouldn't restrict people. And this whole woke argument to me is offensive in the reverse way. I think we should be woke. I think it's not a bad thing. I think anyone who's trying to make a culture war out of it is just offending themselves with their own stupidity. And it really bothers me to think that people in this day and age are falling prey to that kind of thing. And I want to, I'm going to put this in a question for you. As a creative, what do you think you could do to help shape how people perceive these kind of situations, because we try to escape the reality by going into entertainment. We try to escape the negatives of our world by going to the movies or downloading a game or trying to find some way of coping. What do you think creative people could do to help with our society understanding these things from a different point of view and not be as hung up on culture wars, for example? Yeah, the quote unquote air quote to the ends of earth and back culture war we're in is definitely the most disturbing thing in my lifetime, even though there have been events like 9-11 and COVID. To me personally, watching humans enjoy tearing each other apart is vicious. My heart like bleeds. So that essay series that I write, The Casual Causalist, it comes out once a week. And I started in 2006 and it was actually originally called It Sucks to Be You. And it was the most neat. I think I'm a stand-up comic in writing form. It wasn't terrible very immature. And then all of a sudden in 2009, I started writing, I renamed it the casual causalist because I'm casually trying to look at the causal relationship between events. And so now for the last three years, I've basically just been writing essay after essay saying, deal with your feelings. Don't worry about what people are telling you to think or feel, deal with your feelings. And so that's my take as a creative type is not only is my fiction bleeding with like metaphorical examples of how to get along and what happens when you don't, especially, but then in my nonfiction, I'm much more direct and blunt about friendliness. So I'm like a blunt, like person, like I'm at a show on Fox news. No one would watch it. Cause I'm too reasonable and nice about everyone. Like I just, I'm trying to like actually get people to see that your nuanced opinion isn't actually important. You love your dad and your mom, and they can vote differently than you, but you love them. And we're here for the human experience. And this is, you've taught me a lot about this, like this whole idea that, of course, I'm a human, but that's like a misunderstanding. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I'm honored with that. I have to say this, as you were talking just now, I had the idea of another project you can write about. If you were to write about a misogynist, bigot, someone who's racist, someone who's restrictive and call it the idiot and write it about a Southern governor. You probably have a lot of material who's running for president. You probably have a lot of material you could write about. And I think you could use a lot of life experience from just watching what this idiot does on a daily basis and look like it it makes it interesting. I want to ask you about book indexing. If you can tell me a little about that and share with our audience what exactly a book indexer does. Yeah. I never liked the way my peers talked about the book, The Secret. Like, I really didn't like it. I had a strong aversion because I thought too many people who don't understand what work ethic is are going to think that you can just sit there and daydream all day and get everything you want handed to you. With that said, in but I was a school teacher for nine years living in Oakland, California, and I wanted to move here with my wife and son at the time. And I needed a job and there was no teaching positions for my field here that paid nearly enough. So I had to get a new job. And so I started saying to everyone I met, I just want to get paid to read. And everyone's like, there's no such thing. You can't get paid to read. There's slush pile readers and they work for free. And that's it. There's no such thing. And then one day out of the blue, my dad's friend's wife told him to tell him, if you know anyone with an English literature degree, which is like already specific, who's very good with words and writing, we need a new book indexer. And so I just was like, what is that? And just like everyone on a plane, like, what is that? I had to discover what it is. And so I always tell people, when you go to like a reference book and you go to the back and there's an index and you have to look up like the thing you want, and then you find the page. That's me. That's what a book indexer is. So I do that for a living. But the segue of wishing for a job where I read, it was three years after I was doing it that I realized my dream had come true. It was three years. Like I, I suddenly was like, wait a second. I literally get paid to read. I get paid to read an entire book and create an index on it. So yeah. Well, sometimes the manifestation and manifesting, it takes some time, right? And time itself is mm-hmm a human construct. So if it takes three years to manifest something on the spiritual side, that's a drop in the bucket. That's the snap of a finger. But for us, it's momentous. It's this long endeavor. I want to ask you in terms of, I remember when I was on your show, you had the experience you shared with your audience about your son being kidnapped. And I wanted to see if you could share with our audience on this platform, a little about that experience, where it currently stands 
and how it's shaped you personally. If I were a dramatic, a more dramatic person, I'm pretty dramatic. I would say it's the greatest tragedy of my life, but I can't lie. I see things now from such a different perspective because I have a wife and a second kid and I still get to occasionally hear from my son. But the quickest version of the story is when I was getting a divorce with his mother who was born in the United States, but grew up in Thailand. So she has dual citizenship. During the divorce, my attorney told me that if I didn't let her take him on vacations to Thailand, she would probably go to court and claim that I was a controlling strict husband, which in Arizona courts is usually going to massively work in her favor. And so I told her I have a really bad feeling that she's going to take my son and never return. And she laughed and just said, that doesn't really happen. Don't worry. I've met, we've, I've talked to her attorney and a few people, including my father were like, absolutely not. Don't do it. But then when it came down to like how much money it was going to cost to go to trial. And again, like the reason I was divorcing her is because she lies a lot and I didn't trust her. So I didn't want to go to court. It was going to be a lot of weird things. So I, not only did I give her the vacations, but I, in the clause of the divorce, it was to start when he was three, but then to put my best foot forward on her birthday within a month of our divorce, I said, you know what? You can take him this winter or this fall on a two week trip. That's my birthday gift to you to show you that we have to raise the son together the rest of our lives. It's not an ideal situation. I didn't want to quote unquote trap you in America. So she left on vacation and I went to Ecuador to take plant medicine legally, ayahuasca as it's called. And while I was on it, I just, I downloaded like the most depressing message of my life. And it said, it is your son's decision that to grow up feeling like he doesn't really have a dad. It's not about you and it's not about his mother, but it is about you in that when he was researching the candidates, he chose you because he knew you could take it. And so I went home and I told my father on a Friday, I'm going to let my ex take him to Thailand and live there as long as he comes back here for every winter break and for a month in the summer. And I just said, I'm going to do it. Like it's the message. I have to follow it. And he said, I actually think that's appropriate. That actually sounds like a good plan, but why don't you wait till he's five? There's no hurry. Like school starts at five. And I said, okay, yeah, that's a good idea. The next day she didn't call. The next day I got an email and she didn't take her flight home and she made up some excuse. The next thing I'm on the phone with the state department And this is where the second part of the story comes in that's important. It goes back to what I was talking about with conflict. No matter how much you hate the guy who was president and the guy who wears the funny boots and stuff, you still have to see that humans are humans and you still have to deal with this. And so the conflict I was starting, this aggressive fight to get my son back was not only bankrupting me, but it was like killing me. It was like the anger and the like constant attention of just, I was on this heightened state for months. So at the behest of a mutual contact, I agreed to drop all the legislation, let him stay there, provided that they would call me every week or so and I could visit when he was older. Sadly, like every agreement they've ever made, they didn't even keep that. To answer the last part of your question, he intermittently calls me on Skype. He, I'm his dad. He knows me. He knew me very well to a certain point. So I'm just playing the waiting game. And this is where I would pay every psychic in town. Like at the time in 2018, I was just paying so much money to be like, when is he coming back? How does this end? And usually the answer was either BS or the answer was exactly what it is, which is it's in due time. Like how can you triangulate the, yeah, there's his, it's his decision. Ultimately, that's what I've learned. Not the hard way, but that's for you. How old is your son now? He turns eight in October. So he's seven and a half. He's a Libra. Yes. That's yes. what I am too. That's good. That yeah, I'm a Libra myself. Yeah. I feel the heart-wrenching aspect of this. My heart goes out to you. I, I'm i not a father. And in this lifetime, I have two parrots. <laughs> That's my outlet at the moment. But my heart goes out to you because the, I grew up in a single-parent family and I knew my dad is a disruptor. He was a musician, but he was a disruptor. And he was a poor musician with drug and alcohol issues. So that was a, a toxic combo. But from my point of reference, my heart goes out to you in response to your question when I feel like, yeah, it's divine timing, but I also feel like whatever lost time you've had from each other at that point you reconnect, you'll make up for. And yeah. there's going to be an inner peace you gain in ways that you don't even realize yet that you've been leveling up yourself the last few years. And that inner peace that you bring to your son is going to be, you're just not going to let go of each other. 
when it really happens. And I don't, I can't tell an age. I hate to say it. I wish I could tell you, but I know you're like hugging and embracing each other and not letting go. And literally I get teary eyed thinking about it. Cause I could tell the flow of the emotional aspects of it and the tra- trauma. Like when you say you've spent a lot of money on psychics, I understand that even though I'm psychic myself, I've called psychics about a traumatic experience I had happen to me a few years ago. When am I talking to this person again? When am I talking to this person again? And it's, you go in this loop and you spend all this money and you try to gain some temporary relief from the stress of it. And it's not anything like what you're going through. I don't have a son that I'm waiting to come back. I would just say to you that I will pray for you from now on. And I'm not just saying that. I'll do some prayer candles and stuff because I think you're well and deserving of some peace of mind and know it is going to happen. If you can put your mind at rest and know it's going to happen, it is going to happen. I want to ask you this as a follow-up question. I know you said you gave up having to pursue it because of its expense and just how much it affects the heart and the spirit and all and the mind, body, spirit connection, I can imagine. What was the official response from the government when you said, hey, my son's in Thailand and I can't get him back. What do I do? They weren't, there's no extradition treaty. There's no kidnapping thing that we have the agreement with Thailand to be able to reciprocate reciprocity. Is that something that just doesn't exist? So here's, it's a really interesting question. And naturally, because you're an attorney, you would ask it in exactly the right way, which is there's a hog international treaty on child abduction and over 120 countries have signed it. Thailand had signed it like two years prior to my abduction. And the only case that was ever like tried was still pending two years in. My attorneys, plural, because that's how expensive international litigation is, I had an attorney in Thailand, I had an attorney in England, and I had a local attorney. All three had to work together. There were points where I was paying billing for three lawyers at once. One of them was six fifty an hour, and it was just just crazy. And again, I'm saying this for like the audience's like understanding. I'm not like I am no longer bitter about this, but people have jobs and they charge what they charge. But it was like a frustrating experience because the Thai firm was like taking the side of the Thai people, because I've been told this numerous times, I speak Thai and I had a Thai tutor who's one of my favorite people. And she told me, no matter how much you try to convince a Thai person that you're in the right, mothers raise children in Thailand, period. They just do. You don't raise, men don't raise their children. If anything, a man's allowed to take a job in a foreign country and send checks home. It's like a very different culture. I am not sure of this, but her father is very wealthy. And I'm reluctant to say he did it, but I also can't see any other way. But I'm pretty sure he was just, he was a former police officer when he was very young. And I think he was just bribing the right people. Thailand is a country, like it or not, that corruption reigns supreme. It's a lot like India. If you grease the right wheels in the royal family, you can get away with things. My attorneys kept saying, he's playing ball. He's not doing anything wrong, but like nothing would happen. So the government like never really officially responded. And meanwhile, the State Department, they only will take your case for up to two years and then they legally have to drop it. And now when I tell the story, there's a shortcut to it, but yeah. That's shocking. Why would they, what's two years? That's a limitation for them to help you? That sounds ridiculous. Yeah, it, everything about the State Department to me was ridiculous. And the only way I can like now make sense of it is even Brittany Griner, a very famous basketball player, they had to trade like a mass murderer to get her back. And no one wanted to actually do that. It was like a PR move. She's lucky. She's, she knows it. I heard, he knows how lucky she is. It is so hard for our State Department to do anything because they're much more concerned with international peace than they are with like individual traumas like this. So unfortunately, the State Department was very nice to me. I'm not trying to paint them bad. They just told me on day one, they're like, it's very unlikely you'll ever see your son again. And she said, I suggest you use every... No, go ahead. I'm sorry. sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say they oh, were she just... ineffective. Yeah, ineffective. And also, this is, goes back to our glorious president at the time. When you drain the swamp, that includes draining the budget for the State Department. So unfortunately, I was also a victim of that. They would get back to me every two weeks. They didn't have enough people to answer the phones. She was apologetic. She was so nice, the agent that I worked with. But she was also like, I could see her on a hard-nosed detective show. She was like that kind of person. She was such a cliche to me because she just kept saying, I'm sorry, sir, but it's very unlikely that you're going to get this done. You may actually want to drop the case. Finances is really an issue. And then what she said, though, which worked is, Use any mutual contact you have to just keep contact. That's all that matters is keeping contact because it keeps him as he growing up, like a little bit aware of a narrative that you're in it. And it worked. There's, they've never tried to hide my existence. Interesting. I was just thinking about one thing. One time my dad took my brother and I when I was really, I was like five years old and he, he I was staying with them in South Carolina. And this is here in the United States. 
And he took me to another house that no one knew about and then told me that my mom didn't want to be with us. So he was like gaslighting us. And I remember being the victim of that. And it was only a short period of time, maybe a few days. But next thing the police showed up and my dad was like technically kidnapping us, but my mom didn't press charges. She wanted us back in New Jersey. But I can tell you from a personal perspective, as a child, you look to your parents for guidance. You look to them for understanding and unconditional love. And if your mother is taking you to another country and everyone around her is telling you one one part of information and feeding your mind with lies and maybe telling them certain things, it's the truth comes out eventually. That's the point I want to say. And I literally feel very strongly that the two of you will be hugging at some point and the truth comes out. And this is going to be a moment. I just wish I knew time frame, but I'm going to keep praying for you because I know how important that is in your life. And just for you personally, to know that your son's on this planet, but you can only talk to him through Skype and you can't even see him in person or experience him on a daily basis. That's a, that's something so many fathers take for granted on a daily basis. Yeah. Thank you so much, too. It means a lot. I really care. I'm going to get on some lighter stuff here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, feel, I feel bad for you. And I know you have some peace of mind about it, but I, that's something that definitely is an impactful type thing. Tell me about your, you mentioned ayahuasca earlier, and I know that you've delved into planetary medicine, as they call it, in Ecuador. I want to ask you a little about that experience. I've had other guests on to talk about that kind of stuff. And I want to see if you can reflect for audience how that helped shape your perspective on whether or not plant medicine is something like ayahuasca mushrooms, for example, they're not fully legal in the United States yet, but how you feel that experiencing those medicines could help. And if you consider them medicine or not, I should say. Yeah. I don't like using the term medicine only because it depends on why you're going to the doctor, if it's medicine or not. I met people, I did it three times in five days and I did it a lot and other people got scared and didn't even do it. And some people even freaked out while they were on it. Of all the people I know who did it, I'm the only one who didn't like vomit and have all these other things people talk about. And yet I drank more than anyone else at the circle on my third night. And I understand for two reasons why this worked the way it did. One, I followed the strictest rules of the diet before you do it, which means for two weeks straight, I ate rice, salmon, plantains, almonds, and hard boiled eggs. That's it for two weeks. And then I went to Ecuador. I fasted the whole way down there. And I took ayahuasca and they said it's, it's in reverence to what it's doing that you have to give that to it. The other thing about it is it wasn't like a drug and it wasn't like an experience. So I understand why medicine is being used. I also understand the PR jobs going on. Psilocybin, the active ingredient in mushrooms, I was familiar with. I'd done it as a kid and I did it like about every year just to check it in my 20s. And I can tell you that ayahuasca is not at all a psychedelic, not at all. It's nothing like LSD, psilocybin. It's absolutely nothing like marijuana. Every person has a very different experience. Mine was little to no hallucinations. I was never in a jungle. And like I said, I drank more than anyone else at the circle. The person even stared at me and was like, how are you doing this? I have a lot of fears on that. I don't want to waste time because it's just me stuff. But as far as doing it was exactly right for me at that exact time, I don't really, I've done it one more time since because my wife wanted to try it and I had the exact same experience basically, which is to say that for me, it puts me in touch with the one thing I try to ignore my whole life, which is my own humanity. I don't want to be here. I can just say I'm not suicidal, but I don't want to be here. I do not like this. And I, whenever someone says your meat suit, I love that. I glow because I'm like, yes, I get that. My earliest childhood memories are like watching people be racist to each other and just wanting to cry. Like I just, for some reason, I've been like that stupid, like Holden Caulfield complex since I was way too young to even understand it. And so with all that said, ayahuasca helped me see that this is a choice, like it or not, you made it. You can leave if you want. That's immature and not going to work out in the long run, but you can do it. You have free will. So it just made me be a better human. It made me much nicer much more tolerant of others. It made me aware of how much I'm just like projecting. And yeah, so I don't ever recommend it to people, but I do tell people if you're gonna do it in a safe place, I would prefer that you fly to Peru or Brazil or like a place where it's legal because I think that's smart. And the most important thing is I would follow the strict rules of the diet. I really would. I would strongly suggest that. From your vantage point, as you look at what you've experienced, how do you see your own role? We all have a story we tell. 
And you got a chance to actually interact with 100 plus experts who talk to you about death on your show and just in your literary endeavors. And I want to ask you, how has that influenced for you personally about your own role as a custodian of that message? Because by interviewing 100 people, and I know this from personal experience, you become part of that experience whether or not you realize it, right? You're an indexer on your show with 100 different people sharing opinions. And how has that shaped your own perspective of what you're doing? Yeah, it's so weird. I never thought I'd be this person, but I am the reminder of death. That's my role in this humanity episode is I'm supposed to walk people by hand towards their death. No matter how old they are and no matter how young they are, I'm supposed to help people see that that is but going to sleep. It is just, I don't know what's on the other side. I have opinions and I have visions and theories and you do and a lot of people do. But in my 130 something interviews, I can tell you that we all have a different version. So my guess is we probably all have a different version, but the consciousness of this realm can only imagine so many things with the words we have and the concepts we have. So what I do know is death is not to be feared. Death is safe in every technical word. If anything, being alive is less safe than dying. And I am sure that it is horrible to be tortured to death. And to for me, my worst vision of death is like a plane crashing in the ocean and I'm trapped and like drowned. Like I've had this like repeating... So whenever I take a transatlantic flight, I'm always like, oh, crap, if that's my actual psychic thing, you're going to have to deal with it. You have to deal with it. But the point is, once the light go out, like it's just like nothing to be afraid of. And so what I try to help Americans specifically with is we're the like most death is a taboo subject society I know of. And it's really not helpful. And it's a lot of like our gun violence and violence has to do with that. And then the other problem is young people, as I was have no concept of how precious life is. When people over 40 take someone's life, I think it's usually like a personal thing. But a lot of the like violence that's occurring that's really scaring Americans, it's because the average gang member's 12. Like they have no respect and stuff. So I'm not really able to reach those people, but I'm trying to at least reach the people who like out of fear of death are making very absurd decisions in my opinion. If so, I just want to react to what you say because I have my own perspective to share my audience and I know you already know this. If somebody asked me in 2010, Jason, what's your greatest fear? I'd be at that time having something like cancer. And then I had it. And I saw there's another chapter to everything, right? It's not like you get cancer, you die. Bye. It's, oh, you get the scare. It shapes your experience. And I'm five years cancer-free, God willing, knock on my head in September 26th of this year. But I will say this, the tragic plane crash. I was on a plane yesterday. And I will tell you that my perspective of all the hundreds or probably thousands at this point, people I've read with from the other side, death is like falling asleep on the couch or watching TV. It's very seamless. It's like breathing. You and I are both talking. We're breathing fast and we're engaging, but no one in the audience would know that we're breathing even themselves unless I say, hey, everybody take a second. Are you breathing? Yeah, you are. Your breath's a part of your autonomic nervous system and you it happens just like sleep and everything else. It's on a clock. So death is like that too. It's just like when we were born, we don't remember the day we were born, most of us. And death, the body cocoons, the soul gets cocooned, even during a tragic plane crash. This is my theory. During a, a tragic plane crash, or even if you were being stabbed and someone was sitting on top of you and stabbing you in the chest, you get cocooned from that experience so you don't suffer at all. And the reason I draw that from my own experience is I've given readings to people who came and wanted to know about their sibling who they thought committed suicide when a plane, I'm sorry, when a train ran into them from behind when in reality, they were on their phone, not paying attention, drunk, and a, a plane ran in, I'm sorry, a train ran into them from behind. And the experience was described to tell the sibling, it's like getting smacked in the back of the head by somebody, but it wasn't what you think it is. It wasn't like, oh my God, 80 mile an hour object just destroyed my life. It happens so fast, you don't even know it. And you feel the snap on the back of the head, but, you know, but that's about it. So I would just say that anyone who's had a tragic death and people who are grieving can be reassured to know that. God and the universe work in such a way where we don't suffer like that. If you think of Avatar the movie, <laughs> we're like avatars on this planet. We talked about this on Dig on your show, where we're avatars on this planet. And when we die, it's just we ascend. And the reason I say that is I've not only had the experience of being intuitive and psychic myself as a medium, but I've had my own interactions with my dad and I forgave him in death. My grandfather has taught me things about synchronistic communication with angel numbers and songs and pennies and feathers and birds all at synchronistic moments when I'm thinking about my deceased loved one, like my grandfather or the dream communication that leads to physical objects in my hand that I didn't know existed. Or you just can't, you can't keep going. The synchronicities are insane. 
but it's all for a reason. And if we don't fear death and we look at our lives as our greatest opportunity to leave our mark and the greatest chance for us to create, I think we're our own mini universe. Anytime you put a work out there, anytime we record an episode, it's like the big bang for ourselves. We're putting something out there that creates something that can help shape other people's perspectives, hopefully in a positive way. And I think just having this refreshing interview with you today is showing me that death isn't just about psychic mediumship. It's not just about trying to understand why or how or when. It's more about filling in the time while we're here, enjoying that preciousness, your son's experience with you, my traumatic experience as a child growing up in a single parent family and going through what I went through or the setbacks we go through as adults, health issues or whatever it is. It just is meant to shape us. And I believe strongly that you pick where you are. Like you mentioned, we pick, we make choices, we have free will, even from the afterlife before we come back here or what we do. And there's a reason and a purpose for everything, which we understand after we ascend. That's just my, my, my two cents on what you had to say. From your vantage point, you've also worked in a hospital. What is it like for you when you see all these things about our expiration date and you call your podcast Coffin Talk? So how has... All those spiritual experiences shape where you're going next and what you're doing next and where you're going to be, like, say, five years from now. It all ties into actually the question you asked about the catalyst and news and stuff like that. Basically, in hospice, three years of doing hospice, I always like to joke with people. Everyone at the end of their life always says, I wish I'd work more. No, never. Every single person wishes they'd loved more fought less, argued less, apologized to certain people, made amends, atoned. I'm not, I'm culturally Jewish. I was raised like non-denominational, but one of the things about Judaism that I do really respect is they have an annual holiday, Yom Kippur, which is like atonement. And it's about, it's very important that you atone with everything and everyone from the last year. And so I think don't wait till the end. Don't let your homework pile up. If you have atonement, do it. And so my goal in life is just to, as soon as I lose my temper, which is as often as it is, to get back to who I really am and love. And uh, if the person needs an apology, give that to them. If they don't need an apology, act speak louder than words anyway. But uh, I fall off the horse every single day. I get back on. But when I get back on, I get back on with what you said, which is more of a joie de vie, more of a, uh, you're supposed to be enjoying this. Like even the falling off the horse part, like just how often do you get to wear meat suits and manipulate the environment and, and talk to, people in Florida just relate. It's so interesting to relate to someone like you, like anyone, but it's just fascinating. Podcasting is so fun. You know this more than I do. Yeah. I love your answer. And it makes me, I was just thinking to myself how amazing it is to think that you can experience all these things and have an appreciation. It's like embrace the pain, right? Embrace the isolation, embrace your mental health issues. Embrace like our generation in our forties, we've gone through, like you said, nine 11, the fall of communism, nine 11, and then COVID. And if somebody would have said, okay, you're going to live during that period. I don't know how many people would raise their hands and say, me, 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 I want that. I want to live by myself for three years. I want to suffer. I want to go through heartache. I want to be depressed. I want to have my son trapped in a foreign country where I can only talk to him through a computer screen. No, we don't want that. We don't want the suffering. It's how we cope and adjust how the power of forgiveness, like you were talking about atonement, I think the power of forgiveness is so powerful when you could do it with yourself first and then do it with the external people in your life that matter most. One of the lessons I've learned this year is not to be so reactive in my relationships with people when they hurt me and they don't even realize they hurt me because they're so in their own world. I didn't react recently. I just did me. I focused on meditation. I focused on building new relationships. And having new opportunities. And you're an example of that too. You went through this hiring experience with your son that's still going on, but then you're still going forward. And I think that's so inspiring to have that message, that resiliency of the human spirit, the opportunity to not get knocked down and stay down. We're Weebo wobbles, right? I tried to allude yeah. to that in our episode when I was on an interview. I was like, this thing from the 70s, you knock it down. The <laughs> Weebo wobble. We're a human Weebo wobble. And, it, and anyone who's younger than 40, look up the word Weeble Wobble and you'll understand what I mean. <laughs> it's a little toy that it's not very high. You knock it down, but it's weighted. It never stays down. And we are human Weeble Wobble. Trust me on that. And I, I believe we are, man. We just are. We're human Weeble Wobbles. And I love it. in time, it's going to come back around full circle. 
it's going to come back. Your son's going to come back. The people in my life that I've had issues with, at least reconciling certain ways or just lessons learned and maturing and growing and adulting, as we call it, right? We have to adult. Like for me to learn not to be reactive to somebody who hurts me and that it's just, you're adulting. We're learning how to not over overreact, how not to, mm-hmm. and how to have acceptance and understanding about these things. It's powerful messages. And that's just through our own life experience with the disappointments and the setbacks and whatever it is. But people wobble. I'm telling you, I'm going to have to get one of those off eBay. Have it as a, if I do any videos, I can show people, this is what happens when you get knocked down. And then the resiliency of the human spirit, oh, it comes back up again. I think yeah. people see that and understand it. I, I want to ask, it. tell us about Ardor and how our audience can know more about it. I know it's on Amazon, but if you can share with our audience, it's about psychics. Yeah. So, yeah. The theme of Ardor is that there's a little boy whose grandma is always like doing weird things and like quizzing him and he doesn't really get it. But then when he's 16 or 17, he has like a phenomenal psych experience that is not pleasant. And from there, the story unravels pretty quickly. He realizes that he's not only psychic, but very good at it. And he starts to use it like any 18 year old would, which is manipulatively. And then every time he does that, this thing, this character called Source talks to him and scolds him lightly, but says, you have free will ardor, but you're not doing the purpose. And so the novel is about my envisionment of what it would be like to be like phenomenally psychic. You can read everyone's mind on the plane next to you at will. You can switch between people. I definitely hyperbolized it, the most powerful example I could think of. And then meanwhile, the conflict is that he meets another psychic and they start a relationship together, but she's a much better psychic than him. And so it's all about his love affair with her, the fallout, and like this insane journey. It's all fiction. Anyone who knows me and read it was like, oh, I see this, I see that, I see this. But I love it. I loved writing it. I loved researching it. And I love, unlike most of my novels, where I don't like writing endings, I loved writing the ending of this book. It is available on Amazon, as you said, or you can go to MikeyOp.com. And I am, of course looking to sell more copies because this is my passion. And I'm very proud of it because I wanted to introduce psychicness to a fiction market. And believe it or not, there's really very few books about psychics. It's weird. There's nonfiction, tons, but there's not a lot of fiction. And that's such an interesting point because we should have more about psychics. I think it's what you were saying early on when we were talking today, like charlatans, fake psychics, and psychics that don't follow ethics. They're out there. Think past. You can Google psychic scam and find a, a tremendous amount of, of real life examples where, you know, there have been unethical psychics. I remember I encountered a psychic that was like, oh, you have a curse. Oh, if you call me after this, I can then for $300, I'll do woo and you'll have no more curse. And my response to this person was, that's a bunch of bullshit. There's no curse. And you're a charlatan. And I hung up. <laughs> and it's, I wish everyone had the, the fortitude to do that. But unfortunately, think about it. When people call psychics, and you and I both were an example of this, it's usually when we're on our own most desperate moments, the moments when we feel most vulnerable, that we just want some type of relief from the stress and anxiety of overthinking. What if thoughts? What if this person never comes back to me? What if my son never returns from Thailand? What if? And you got to stop those what ifs, right? But if you have a good psychic reading, there's healing involved. Because the psychic can reassure you and say, stop those what-if thoughts. It's going to happen. Don't worry about it. Don't overthink it. Calm yourself. That's the way people should receive psychic information. I've had psychics when I've contacted them and they're like, oh, you're going to die in 10 years. And you're like, thanks. What am I supposed to do now? (laughs) Everything that I had planned for retirement, now I got to speed it up. And then what happens when I speed it up and I live 20 years? It's We're not omniscient. And I call myself as a psychic to say that anybody I read for, I say at the beginning of the reading, I'm not 100% accurate, nor do I ever claim to be, and I'm not omniscient. So if you have high expectations that I'm going to tell you when you're going to die, hang up the phone now. I'm not going to read for you. I'd rather you have an open mind and hopefully I can give you some reassurance and clarity. That's what I find psychic readings are, for, are good for. And giving us that reassurance and clarity in any way possible we can receive it as a member of the audience or as you and I, there's healing energy involved. There's an exchange that's practical. And psychic should that was be- a- that's part of why you were in my big three, like the three people I, I sincerely think are actually psychics. And uh, part of it was just listening to your show when you would just say that flatly to someone who'd call in. Just be like, no, I'm sorry. I don't. But I'd just be like, what kind of marketing psychic has a show where he admits? And I'd be fascinated by it because I was like, 
he's ethical like that. He's not BSing. And then meanwhile, when you hit things, you would hit them. And it was like amazing. So I've always enjoyed that. Uh, the ethical, you used to call yourself that the ethical psychic. I will tell you as an attorney, ethics are so strong and you can't call yourself the ethical attorney. You'd be reported and oh, yeah. because that's what we're expected to be. It's like calling somebody the happy comedian. Like we're supposed to make people laugh when you're a comedian. Yeah. You want to be the happy comedian. You don't want to be the depressing comedian. Who's going to go to your show and get depressed. We have enough of that in the real world. We don't need that in entertainment or to amuse ourselves. Like we've got to be uplifting. And so first off, I'm impressed that you actually have listened to my show. I'm joking. But I, when you do this, when you just do it, you don't even think like when I release these episodes, I know they, they get listened to because I see the stats on them, but it's nice to have the feedback. And I appreciate you offering that today. And I just want to thank you so much for coming. I know we're running low on time. I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And I, I would like to say that anytime you have a psychic book coming out, or if you have other metaphysical types of topics, I'm an open platform for you. I'd love to have you come back on and share your wisdom with us because our audience is going to gain from this conversation. Just first off, I remember thinking back when I was on your show last summer, praying for you that you'd have certain things with your personal life with your son and everything work out in some way. And I'm one of these people like, oh, we're the most powerful country in the world. Can't we just make a phone call and get things to happen? And you brought up the real life implications of that is every time we go overseas, we're at the mercy of that foreign country. We're not a global empire. Every country is not beholden to us. Even if they sign treaties, that doesn't mean necessarily that treaty is going to be honored. If somebody's greasing the wheels behind the palm of the situation, it, it just depends. And I, I can't wait until the day you reunite with your son. Like I, I will tell you that. And I will try to manifest that in my mind when I visualize it with healing energy, just knowing that you've already found peace in a way, but true peace comes from reconciliation, like you said, and reconnecting. And that's one of the best things we have is the ability of hope and optimism. And I just appreciate you coming on and sharing that message of renewal and hope and optimism today. So thank you for coming. Well, I just want to say thank you. Yeah. Feeling is more than mutual. And I really appreciate it. Tell us again, how we can find you one last time. Cause I'll make sure I have that on the audio of the show. Cause I'll have it in the show notes for everybody, but it's just in case they're listening. Yeah. I would love for anyone listening. I write a free weekly essay. It's called The Casual Causewist. You can sign up at mikeyop.com, M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. In that newsletter is the also link to each week's podcast of Coffin Talk. And that's it. I don't spam you. There's one extra bonus episode a month. So you'll get about five emails a month from me. But you would be doing me the biggest favor in the world if you just sign up for it. That's it. And then meanwhile, if you want to go that extra step and enjoy a kick-ass, awesome fiction book, head over to Amazon. The link's on the page and buy Ardor and read it because I've gotten enough reviews now. I have the confidence that I did not have about a month and a half ago, which is people like it a lot. And thank you again, Jason. I'm a fan. I got to read the book, but I'm a fan of, of you personally. I'm a fan of your story. I think you need to write a book about your own personal story, Mr. Writer. Maybe you have somebody write it about you autobiographically or whatever, but <laughs> I'm definitely a fan. I just want to thank Mike for coming on the show today. I really should have done this episode a while back. I want to thank the audience for tuning in this episode. This really means a lot to me having Mike on today because real life experience shapes who we are. Our setbacks, our personal circumstances obviously dictate our perspective. And Mike has chosen to write about this stuff, be creative, be a musician, express himself. And Ardor is the most recent example of that. And it just came out in March. It's about psychic stuff. Our audience will enjoy that kind of energy to review and read about. And I encourage everyone to check this stuff out. I think when we look at ourselves and we try to gain perspective, the next time you're brushing your teeth in the morning and you look in the mirror, think to yourself, what steps have I taken to be more spiritual today? How can I be kinder to others? What do I need to do to be more positive thinking and flowing? Think of all these things. And then when you get a chance, check out Ardor. Check out people like Mike who inspire us that you can overcome the challenges of life through being creative and expressing. It's one of the best things I've learned to do in life. And I think each of you should do the same. Read up on this stuff and engage. And don't ever feel like you're stuck. You're not. So stay positive. Because when you're positive, anything's possible. I'll have all the information in the show notes. Thank you so much. Until next time. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric Acid. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the Rock Podcast. Back to the arena, the interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock fan like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, the interview. Electric acid.